but including this morning, we are two sermons away from finishing the book of Genesis. Isn't that amazing? I love that this church preaches through a book. I just think that's just so great. And this morning, we're going to be talking about Genesis 49, verses 1, all the way through to chapter 50, verse 14, which is a pretty big chunk of text. And it kind of includes the final chapter of Jacob's life. Now, I, I don't want to complain, um, but you know that the first sermon I was assigned when I came here was preaching on Abraham buying a burial plot for Sarah, okay? <laughs> And now, while one of your pastors is getting married, and the other two are frolicking their weekend away in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, I'm left here with a chapter and a half to cover in one sermon. Now, I know I've only been here for six months, okay? But I'm starting to wonder about this providential assignment of <laughs> sermons. Now, I don't want to imply anything, but all I'm going to say is simply this. If we ever preach through 1 Corinthians... I am making sure that Christine and I are on vacation when that head covering thing comes around, okay? <laughs> but I, I digress. <laughs> so anyway, we have a fair amount of text to wade through, and I, I just want to give you a heads up about that. Um, we're not going to be able to cover everything. There's a lot in there. And um, we're going to be reading a lot of text. And also, it's not going to be your typical three-point plus sermon. We're going to have two main sections. So, you know, we get through the first section, don't panic. All three points are not going to be that length. We just have two this morning, just to kind of give you a, a heads up, because I know what that's like um, on the other side of, of the podium here. But why don't we go ahead and begin looking at Jacob's final words. Jacob knows he's close to dying, right? He's already blessed his two grandsons and adopted them as his own, and now he gathers his 12 sons to speak his final words to them. And can you feel the anticipation that must have been in the air? I mean, what is Jacob going to say to them, right? I mean, someone's last words on this earth are, are, are a big deal. I mean, they can say a lot about the person, what's important to them, you know, what they, you know, final requests, who they are. I mean, consider some of these last words from, from famous people throughout history. For example, P.T. Barnum, that entrepreneur and circus founder, you know him, his last words on this earth were, how were the receipts today at Madison Square Garden? Even at the end, money was on his mind. And then there was Karl Marx, that great economist and, and atheist. Not great atheist, but that adjective just applied to the economist part. Who angrily said to his housekeeper, she asked him for last words to write down. He said to her, go on, get out. Last words are for fools who haven't said enough. Last words can convey a lot, can't they? Now, Humphrey Bogart, that famous actor and also famous consumer of adult beverages, humorously said, I should never have switched from scotch to martinis. Last words. Sometimes they're very ironic. Pancho Villa, the Mexican revolutionary, his last words were, don't let it end like this. Tell them I said something. <laughs> and, and finally, you know, last words can sometimes be very tragic. Julian the Apostate, who was a Roman emperor who tried to stamp out Christianity unsuccessfully, I might add, tragically admitted defeat with his last words by declaring, you have won, O Galilean. What would you want your last words to be? If you knew you were dying and you had your family gathered around you or your friends or both, 
What would you want to leave them with? Why don't we go ahead and take a look at Jacob's last words. If you will turn in your Bibles to Genesis 49, we're going to be reading the first 28 verses. So hang in there. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed, then defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O oh, my glory, be not joined to their company, for in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion, as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell on the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepholds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels, so that his rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents. Up to the bounties of the everlasting hills, may they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who is set apart as brothers." Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel, and this is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Let's just pray for a few minutes, shall we? Father, I, uh, I thank you for this, this privilege of preaching your word. Uh, it always makes me tremble when I think about the responsibility, and I, I pray that you would govern every word that comes out of my mouth, 
and make sure that it is in line with your word and your will. And I pray for all of our hearts that we would hear your truth and that it would just not be heard, but that it would sink into our hearts and move us towards action as well as hearing. I pray all these things in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we know that Jacob's words are more than just kind of words of wisdom, right? We know that they're prophecy because he says, you know, gather around me so that you may know what will happen to you. So Jacob is being used here to communicate the sovereign purposes of God. And those purposes reflect and incorporate not only the character of his sons, but also their past actions. And, and as we can see, some of his words don't seem like blessings at all, do they? I mean, consider Jacob's words to Reuben, his firstborn. I mean, Reuben, I'm sure, must have been expecting his ship to come in at this point, right? Because he is the firstborn. And as the firstborn, he's supposed to get you know not only his inheritance, but a double portion. So he's just waiting for it. But instead, what he finds is that his preeminence is replaced with disqualification. See, Reuben's sin in Genesis 35 has caught up with him because he slept with his father's concubine, you may remember. And now because of that sin, both he and his descendants are going to pay the price. Because instead of preeminence, the reality is, is that after settling in Canaan, the tribe of Reuben pretty much just disappears from the face of history. Well, then the next two, the chickens also come home to roost, don't they? For Simeon and Levi. Remember how they avenged their sister in Genesis 34? Their fierce and ruthless and cruel slaying of all living things, men, women, children, animals, and Shechem? Well, just like it earned Jacob's rebuke back then, it earns his rejection here. And because of Simeon and Levi's sin, their future tribes also pay the price, ultimately being scattered and divided in Israel. The reality is that Simeon, Simeon's land was surrounded by Judah's land, and eventually that tribe was just swallowed up by Judah, and the Levites would be assigned to the priesthood, not having land of their own, but only a handful of cities to dwell in. Now, I just want to stop for a second here, and I, I want to make an application. It's a hard one. But that application is, is that our sin can have far-reaching and unintended consequences. We see how the sins of Reuben and Simeon and Levi all impact them and those who came after them. Now, our church champions grace, and I am so grateful for that, the gospel is good news, and we should champion the grace and mercy that's found in Jesus. But I, I just don't want us to forget this, is that God never promises that our sin will not have consequences in this life. That's sobering, isn't it? Because I don't know about you, but I mean, I think we all like to play with fire, don't we? We kind of take God's grace for granted sometimes. We ignore those continued warnings by the Holy Spirit in our hearts saying, stop, stop this, right? Or we deceive ourselves that you know our sin only impacts us or that we have control of it when in reality we're standing on the precipice, the edge of having our sin and its consequences destroying the lives of ourselves, the ones we love, and possibly the ones that come after us. I mean, for example... What's one more night of indulging in a little pornography, right? I mean, work is so stressful, and I need some kind of relief. Yet with every click of that mouse, 
your idol is getting a tighter grip on your heart. And your heart is hardening a little more. And a little more poison is seeping into your marriage. And next thing you know, you're contemplating seeking out the real thing because the thrill of watching it on the screen just isn't enough for you. And you've gone from needing relief to risking losing everything. Or here's another example. He's just a Facebook friend, right? I mean, yeah, we dated in high school, but that was years ago. And then all of a sudden, the messages become more frequent between you, and they become more flirty. And then you're amazed by how well he listens to your heart when your husband doesn't. And all of a sudden, this emotional affair leads to actual plans to meet. And you're on the edge of the devastating consequences to you, your marriage, your children, and quite possibly your children's children. Now here's one that might be a little more applicable to you college students or those who are going away to college this fall for the first time. I mean, everyone at college parties, right? And everybody at those parties drinks because we need to let off a little steam. School is hard, and next thing you know, the one night of partying becomes two or three and four, and then one night, armed with the self-confidence that can come false self-confidence that can come from drinking too much alcohol, you either get behind the wheel or in the back seat or wherever in a car and either lose your life or have someone else lose their life, have it snuffed out, and you can just watch your dreams and your plans go down the drain. Or how about a personal example? Last Sunday was my ordination, and last Sunday morning I had a handkerchief in my pocket with my father's initials. And the reason why I had that in my pocket was because he wasn't here. And the reason why he wasn't here is for the same reason that he hasn't been there for 27 years. It's because my father let his gluttony control his life, and he died at the age of 52 when I was 15 and has missed everything. He missed all my graduations from high school, college, seminary. He missed my marriage. He missed the birth of my daughter and the one that's coming in December. He missed my ordination. You know, and the kicker is, is that he's passed that sin on to me so that for the rest of my life, I will have to struggle not to bow down to the same idol of food. Beloved, listen to me. Our sin can have unintended and far-reaching consequences. Some of you may be sitting there saying, where's the grace, Tom? Come on, where's the grace? Brothers and sisters, Our God is a gracious God, but he is also a God who is holy, 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 and who calls us to be holy because he is holy. He is a God who has purchased us by the costly blood of his Son so that we, neither you nor I, are our own. So I urge you this morning as I urge myself, let's stop playing around with our sin and let's stop muddying our feet by willfully, willfully sinning and then going to His grace and using it as our own personal doormat for those sins. I urge you to remember that when it comes to grace, it is also God's grace that leads us to repentance. And for some of you, that is what you need to hear. That is the grace that you need to embrace this morning. Because sometimes that, that grace can let us reap the consequences of what we have sown. And I I 
pray that you do not let it get to that point, that you repent now, that by that same grace, you will flee and turn from your sin and put it to death before it is too late. Because the reality is that God loves us and He disciplines us. And that sometimes that love and that discipline and that gracious, merciful restoration of you to Him has to look like your heart being torn to pieces and the air filled with your wailings because you can't turn back the clock. Beloved, always remember that your sin can have unintended and far-reaching consequences. God is gracious and He forgives our sins and He won't hold them against us, but sometimes in the here and now, it can have terrible consequences. Now, there is hope in the midst of this. There is hope for those who have repented and yet still feel the sting. And I understand that. Because God can mercifully and graciously also redeem the consequences of our sin. Just ask Judah. I mean, think about that. If you were Judah, you had to be shaken in your boots at that point, right? You've already seen what Jacob has had you know, to say to bless your, your three older brothers, and now it's your turn. I mean, you're the one who suggested that you sell Joseph into slavery. You're the one who slept with his own daughter-in-law, thinking she was a cult prostitute, gets her pregnant, calls for her burning in light of her immorality, and then gets exposed to the fact that it was you who got her pregnant in the first place. I mean, what's coming, what is coming Judah's way? I mean, we all know what he deserves, right? But what does he hear? What does he hear? I mean, imagine Judah's response when he hears the words of his father. My, my brothers are going to bow down to me? Now, what, wait, wait a second, Dad. Are you sure you got that right? Because that bowing down thing, isn't that Joseph's deal over there? Kings? are going to come from me? And not only that, but there's one who's coming from me who will have the obedience of the nations, whose kingdom will enjoy such parallel, unparalleled prosperity that, that they're going to use wine for, for wash water for their clothes. I mean, that's what all that wine stuff means, Dad, right? Prosperity? I mean, are you sure you got the right guy? And imagine the astonishment of Judah's brothers in that situation. I mean, especially the first three. Right, Reuben, Simeon, Levi. What? Are you kidding me? That's just wrong. I mean, what he did was just as bad as what we did. That's not fair. I mean, honestly, I'd probably feel the same way if I were in that situation. In fact, there are probably some of you right now who are thinking, that's not fair. And you know what? You're right. It isn't fair. But I ask you something. Is Judah really any different from us? I mean, which one of us deserves God's blessing? Really. None of us do. Because of our sins, don't we all deserve from God His curse and His wrath and His punishment? The answer is yes. But this passage beautifully illustrates the Gospel because it reminds us that just as God graciously and mercifully chose Judah to be blessed in spite of his great sins. He has mercifully and graciously 
chose us to be blessed in Christ, in Jesus Christ, because of our great sins. You see, it's never about merit or earning or deserving with God. I mean, even Joseph's blessing, I don't know if you noticed this when we read it, his blessing flows ultimately from God's gracious working. Yes, Joseph was faithful to God despite the bitter attacks and the harassment. His bow remained unmoved, but ultimately, who does, jo- who does Jacob tell us ultimately made Joseph's arms agile? It was the mighty one of Jacob, the shepherd, the stone of Israel, the God of your father, the Almighty. I mean, even Joseph's faithfulness was rooted in God's gracious working. So try and walk away this morning not feeling perplexed or trying to figure it all out. Instead, let's walk away this morning just saying, wow, I am just like Judah. Having God's sovereign grace and mercy poured upon me because in Christ, I don't get what I really deserve and I get blessings that I could never, ever, ever earn or deserve in a million years. I mean, ultimately, it's not about us, our faithfulness, or even our sinfulness. It's about a merciful and gracious God who mysteriously and sovereignly works all things for his own glory and for the good of those who in Christ love him so that God is even able to weave the most horrible, unintended, far-reaching consequences of our vilest sins into his glorious tapestry of redemption. I mean, isn't that amazing? That, my brothers and sisters, is amazing grace. You know, there's so much more to say about Jacob's final words, and I, I, I don't want to shortchange the text, but I'm going to skip over what Jacob says to the rest of his sons, and it's killing me to do that because there's just so much there. Um, that we could dig into. But we need to, to press on ahead here. But before we do, let's just take a deep breath. That was a little intense, right? There you go. And let's talk about the last section because after Jacob's final words, what we see from, from verses 29 to chapter 50 to verse 14 is Jacob's final command, his final resting place, and his final faith. Jacob's faith was pretty inconsistent, as we've seen throughout Genesis, right? I mean, there are times that it rose to the occasion, but more times than not, his sin and his weakness won the day. But what I love about this text is how it shows that Jacob finished well, that he had a hope which ultimately translated to faith. And we're going to see that in this next section here. If you'll turn with me again back to the text, it's going to start with 49.29 and go to 50.14. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field that Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, 
he drew up his feet in the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave at the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess the burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. I need a drink of water. <laughs> you know, I think that that is just, it's just intriguing to me that Jacob uses his last breath to issue the command to where he is to be buried. Right? Bury me in the cave Abraham bought from Ephron the Hittite at Machpelah, east of Mamre in Canaan. And then he dies. He takes his last breath and he dies. And then we have that very moving scene with Joseph deeply lamenting the death of his father. And just like all of us, when we have to deal with the death in the midst of our pain and our sadness, there are also preparations that have to be made, right? And Joseph does that. He has his father embalmed. And he does so for practical considerations. He's not adopting the Egyptian practice, religious practice of embalming. And we know that because it, the text tells us that he commanded the physicians and not the priests to embalm his father. He does it for practical reasons. I mean, after all, he has the official mourning period. He's got to get the caravan up and going. And then there's the 200 plus miles to get to the cave to bury his father. I mean, think about it. In, in John 11, Jesus, as he was about to uh, raised Lazarus from the dead, commanded them to remove the stone from the tomb. And Martha, according to the King James Version, said, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he has been dead for four days. Well, if, if Lazarus stinketh after four days, you can only imagine what Joseph would have had on his hands with his father's body after all that time. So he does it for practical uh, considerations. Then we see this family funeral that becomes this national time of mourning as the Egyptians join in. And we just see the, the great love and honor and respect that the Egyptians have 
for Joseph and how God has worked in his life through him. That the entire nation joins in mourning his father's death. And in fact, the, the family pilgrimage becomes this kind of national parade, right? Where this motorcade, or, or maybe, maybe a better word might be chariotcade, of, uh, of the who's who of Egypt kind of join in the funeral procession to Canaan, right? And just before we find out uh, that Joseph and the whole family return to Egypt, Moses once again recounts the details of uh, Jacob's burying place. Now, why, why does Moses do this? Why does he go into such detail in the beginning and then do the same exact details again at the end of this section? You know, I'm, I'm having some serious deja vu right now, as they say, because I feel like I've preached on this before. <laughs> and the fact is, is that I have. <laughs> Because in Genesis 23, Moses does the same thing when Abraham buys the burial plot for Sarah. He gives all these painful details to us in the beginning, and then he repeats the same exact things at the very end. And I'm the reason why he does that here is the same reason he did it there. Just as in Genesis 23, Moses was saying to his audience, look to the faith of your father Abraham. Trust in the God of your father, Abraham. He's saying the same thing here. Look to the faith of your father, Jacob. Trust in the God of your father, Jacob. I mean, do you realize how great Jacob's expression of faith is here with his last words? I mean, with his final words, he commands, bury me with my fathers. I mean, this isn't just him handling some kind of last-minute details, you know. This is him asserting something. This is Jacob asserting, our God is going to bring us back to Canaan. God has proven himself to me. And just as he made a covenant with Abraham and my father Isaac, he made those same promises to me, Jacob is saying. And I know that he, God, will do it. I mean, sure. Sure, we're in Egypt, but you bury me at Machpelah. You know why? Because I don't know how and I don't know when. But I know that God will bring my people back. And when he does, I want to be there when they come home. I mean, in essence, that is what's going on here. And Moses knows that the Israelites need to hear this because he knows that they're going to struggle. And maybe they already have, depending on when this was written, right? That they're struggling in their journey to the promised land. And he knows that they will need to remember the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he calls them to trust in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, thank goodness we're not like that, right? I mean, we don't struggle like that in our journey, do we? <laughs> the reality is, is we are just like the Israelites in that we do struggle in our journey. But like them, we are always called to trust in faith that God will keep His promises. And, and honestly, we have so much more evidence that He will, don't we? I mean, let's just take Jacob's words to Judah, that prophecy. I mean, was God not faithful in keeping that word to Judah? I mean, kings came from Judah, and they did rule over their, their brothers. I mean, King David initially fulfilled this promise, right? In fact, you know, in 2 Samuel 7, David even kind of gets this scepter will not depart promise of his own because God essentially says, your throne, David, will be established forever. I mean, even when it looked like God had broken His Word, that He had broken His prophecy, when Israel became divided, when the northern and southern kingdoms were conquered, 
when all Israel went into exile and there was no Davidic king on the throne and no hope that there ever would be one on the throne again. Even in the midst of all that, in faith, the prophets wouldn't let the promise go. Now, there are a lot of passages I could look at. And, and uh, Elisha, I'm going to call on some double duty here, if you don't mind, if you could hit one up. I'm gonna, I picked one from Ezekiel. And there are lots we could have looked at. Now, keep in mind, Jerusalem lies in ruins at this point, And Ezekiel himself has been exiled. And this is what he prophesies. This is what the Lord is saying to his people in the middle of all that. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I mean, if I'm an Israelite, I I just want to bust out laughing. Are you kidding me? But that's the prophets in faith wouldn't let go. And then we find out in the New Testament in this next passage from from Luke. Go ahead and hit me, Elisha. (laughs) There you go. That what the prophets had said came to pass in Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 1. And the angel said to her, that being Mary, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. There it is again. And even in the last book that we have, the Apostle John hits on the same promise. In Revelation chapter 5, then I saw, this is John speaking in the future, then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look at it. Except, and one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And Jesus himself And one last passage from Revelation says this about himself. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Now what's what's my point in all this? God is faithful. And he keeps his promises even when it looks like there's no way he possibly could. And we know this by looking at Jesus because Jesus is the one that Jacob ultimately prophesied about, right? He is the one whose coming has fulfilled and whose return will ultimately fulfill Jacob's words and the divine promises that line behind them. And this is just one prophecy we're talking about. I mean, when we think about all the covenants God has made 
and consider all the promises that lie behind them, when we think about all the prophecies that God used the prophets to declare about the Messiah and His coming kingdom, and we think about how Jesus has fulfilled every single one of them or will come again to bring them about to completion, I mean, doesn't Jesus Christ prove without a shadow of a doubt that God will be faithful, that He can be trusted? That we can have hope that He will be true to even His future promises because of His faithfulness and fulfilling the promises from the past. I mean, how much more evidence do we need? I mean, what Abraham and Isaac and Jacob saw so dimly, what the prophets kind of saw on the horizon, we have seen most clearly. I mean, I don't know what you're struggling with this morning. I don't know what circumstances you may be facing or the hardships or pain that you're being called or will be called to endure. I don't know how Satan may be savagely attacking you today or what spiritual crisis you may be navigating. But what is true, though we all struggle with it, we all, you and I, struggle with it, is that our God is faithful. So, though everything around you may scream to the contrary, that God doesn't care, that He can't be trusted, that He isn't good, that He's impotent, even that He doesn't exist. Remember Jacob's prophecy to Judah and how our God kept His promise. And cling to Jesus, the one who has fulfilled and will fulfill that promise and all the other promises that God has made to us. Stir your faith and trust in God by remembering that we live on this side of Jesus Christ that we live in the glorious light of Him dying for our sins and being raised again. Remember that after enjoying so many of those promises already, we can trust the ones that are to come, that we can trust that our sins have been paid, that we have been forgiven, that we don't have to fear death and the grave, that one day our Lion from the tribe of Judah, our Davidic King of Kings and Lord of Lords will come again and set things right and that we will share in His reign and that we will enjoy His unimaginable kingdom of prosperity and peace and joy forever and ever. That is our promise. So when your faith is being assaulted by life circumstances, and it will be if it isn't now, I can tell you that, you remember Jacob's faith? And you remember Jacob's God resting in the truth that even if you take your last breath today, and even if today you are buried with your family in the cave east of Leesburg, God will be faithful and keep His promise to bring you and all who are in Christ, all of us, home to the promised land. I'm going to conclude by telling you about a man who so embraced these truths. His name was Jonathan Edwards. He lived in the 1700s. He's probably one of the greatest minds that America has ever produced. Amazing writer, a catalyst for the Great Awakening. And I wish Jed were here because he'd be proud of this. He was also the third president of the College of New Jersey, which is now Princeton. But more importantly, Jonathan Edwards was a man who loved Jesus Christ and sought so hard to try and glorify him in all that he did with his life. And very tragically, a month after becoming president of the College of New Jersey, Jonathan Edwards received the newly developed smallpox inoculation. 
and he had a very adverse response to it and got very sick and to the point of death. Do you remember the power of last words? Do you want to know what Jonathan Edwards' last words were on this earth? I'm going to tell you. One of the things he said very close to death was this. Now where is Jesus of Nazareth, my true and never-failing friend? And then a very short time later, he said this as his last words. Trust in God and you will never fear. Beloved, I want to die like that. I want to live like that. Don't you? Let's pray. Father, I am just so aware right now of how I'm preaching to myself up here of how much I need to hear these very same words. And I pray that you would use these words to stir our hearts and to change us to not only be more like Jesus, but to trust and love him and worship him more deeply and more completely. And I thank you for your gracious work in our lives, though there are times it doesn't it's not very pleasant to us because we know that you love us and you have such great concern for us. And I pray that you would give us a vision in the midst of those times of your care and concern in your presence. We thank you for this opportunity to learn from your word and ask you to make it an opportunity to be changed by your word. I pray all these things in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen.